Psalm 23 is where we've been since the beginning of the year, really, uh, two months here inside of this uh, passage of Scripture. And uh, Psalm 23 is literally one of the best-known pieces of literature in the world. It is uh, famous and revered in several major religions. Uh, This is a passage of Scripture that we use so often in our context, generally in a death scenario. We talked about that last week that at a funeral, this passage is being read. Inside of a card, this passage is often printed. And uh, we use this often, but we've learned thus far that this psalm is so much more than about death. Really, this psalm is about life, and it's about how we can live life victoriously under the care of the Good Shepherd, and that we don't have to fear death when we get to death, but we can live life a day-to-day under His care. And it's just a beautiful piece of Scripture. So, We're going to uh, read the psalm, the six verses here this morning, and then uh, I'll pray and we'll have a little bit of special music. Psalm 23, uh, verse number one, the Bible says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This morning we get to tackle the first half of verse number five, which is this thought that thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Uh, Admittedly, this uh, phrase in Psalm 23 is probably the toughest phrase to study and to digest, this thought of Psalm 23, verse number 5, that thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. As you study this psalm, and those that have studied it, if you read a commentary or theologian, uh, really commentaries and people are split on what they think this phrase means. So you'll have probably half of people that would say David in verse number five shifts his imagery from a shepherd and sheep and a flock to the imagery of that of a host. So that now there's this uh, picture of a host who's preparing a table that my cup runneth over. I'll dwell in the house all the days of my life. And that verses five and six, he's actually employing a different sort of analogy. Uh, Then you'll have another half that say the thought of the shepherd and the sheep continue to unfold through verse number 5 and through verse number 6, not as explicitly maybe, but it continues to unfold. I would personally find myself in that camp, and the reason for that is I think that the analogy in the imagery still works in light of a shepherd and a sheep. You have to dig a little further, and you have to understand the shepherd's relationship to a sheep, especially in light of the seasons and how he would take the sheep on different journeys through different points in the year. But I I believe that that David is still unfolding that, and he's still employing this thought of a shepherd and a sheep in their relationship. So the way that that is working is through this psalm, verses 1 through 6, David is actually taking you on a year-long journey in the life of the flock of a sheep. So you start in verses 1 and 2, that the Lord's my shepherd, I don't want, and he's making me to lie down in green pastures and leading me beside the still waters. And here is David with his sheep sort of at base camp. 
And then you come to verse number three that he begins to lead me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And we talked about how a shepherd would have base camp and he would rotate the flock and he would lead them down different paths to go to different pastures and not overgraze one place. Then you go into verse number four that I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death that as winter begins to uh, give way to spring and as the snow begins to recede, now the flock is beginning to head through the valley and up the mountain. And in verse number five, we come to this tableland and we get up into the mountains in springtime. Then the end of verse number five, you have, he anoints my head with oil. It's summertime and the sheep uh, have fly season. The fly season, it's a bother. The flies are all over the sheep and so the shepherd will anoint them with oil to give them a remedy for that. And then at the end of summer, you come to verse number six and the sheep go back down from the mountain to the home, to the ranch, and there I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So uh, many believe, and I would be in this camp, that David is taking you on this journey through the different seasons of a flock and what they're experiencing throughout the course of a calendar year. So we come to verse number five in this thought that thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And based on the shepherd and sheep imagery, I think that this verse at least teaches us three different lessons that we can apply to our own lives and we can take away from this. So lesson number one from Psalm 23, verse 5, the first half of it, is this. He, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, has prepared a place of nourishment. So what this is saying is that in the life of the flock, the shepherd would, even really before winter is over, the shepherd would go ahead of the sheep and he would go up into the mountain ranges, into the alplands or into what we would call the tablelands. If you have a sheep flock in the western United States or even in, in South America or some different places, they still to this day, a shepherd will say, I'm taking the sheep to the mesa. That's a Spanish word for table is what they call it. I'm taking them up to the tablelands. And the shepherd will go ahead of the flock and he will, even while there's snow on the ground, he'll begin to scout the land. He'll be able to look for signs of predators. He'll be able to uh, know kind of this would be a good place to, to camp out for a few weeks or this would not, and he'll begin to scout it. Then as the snow begins to recede, the shepherd, even to this day, but especially in David's day, would go, would take one or two preliminary trips ahead of the flock into the tablelands, and the shepherd would prepare the land. The shepherd would go ahead with bags of salt and minerals and he would spread that uh, amongst the grass so that it would be a place of nutrition and nourishment. And the shepherd would take uh, maybe a spring where the vegetation is overgrown and he would begin to clear that vegetation out so that the spring can flow smoothly. He would maybe, if they've been there uh, years prior and he built a little earth dam for the sheep to be able to drink, he would make sure that that was intact and possibly repair the earth dam and he would literally prepare the land or prepare the table ahead of the sheep before them so that when they get there, it's a place of nourishment. The shepherd would go ahead and he would ensure that when my flock arrives to the mesa, to the tableland, that they have a place to eat and they have a place to, uh, to be nourished. And in our, in our modern context, we wouldn't use this much, the shepherd and the sheep, we would, the best modern analogy I could give you would be our restaurants we go to. Ever wonder how it is that you go to a restaurant, you sit down, you order, and like 10 minutes, your meal is there. Ladies, wouldn't that be nice if that was the case for, you know, your meals at home that you're making? Or guys, I know we have a lot of guy cooks in the room as well. 
Wouldn't that be nice? If we can have a meal, you know, 30 minutes or less, that is amazing, right? But how is it you go to a restaurant and you sit down and, and the appetizer's there right away and the steak, I mean, it's just 15 minutes and your food is right there in front of you. How do they do that? They prepare the table. They do pre-service. You know, the night before, they made that salsa and stuck it in the fridge. So you got there, they just pulled it right out. They've already rolled the silverware. They've already brewed the tea in the back. There's a steak that is seasoned sitting right next to a flaming hot grill. So when the order comes in, they stick it on there and it's ready to go. Literally speaking, when you go to a restaurant, that table is prepared before you. Now, this has a definite spiritual connection to our lives because in a very literal way, in a spiritual way, long before you ever became a Christian, long before you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ and you decided that I, I want to accept the offer of salvation, long before that, that table was well prepared. That was set. That was done. All you had to do was accept the invitation and sit down. Jesus Christ already knew you. He knew that you would need him and that you would sin. He had already come. He had already died, buried, risen from the dead. The comforter, the spirit has already come. That table is already set. And this leans into what we celebrate and worship. And as we look at the beauty and majesty of God, it leans into our God who's an eternal, everlasting God that has prepared the table already. Psalm 92 would say it this way, that before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. What David is saying is before anything that you see was, God was there, but not just there previously, but from everlasting to everlasting. Like God is in your tomorrow. God is in your next week, that literally in one hand, he holds all of eternity past, and in the other hand, he holds all of eternity future, and he's everlasting to everlasting. He is eternal God. He's already there, and we celebrate this thought that God prepares the table, that before the foundations of the world, this plan was in place. It was a done deal. The table was prepared so that when you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, it was done. There was no cooking to do. There was no prep to do. Table was done. And in a very spiritual way, that table for us, not just in salvation, but in our Christian walk, is already prepped. It's already prepared. It's there waiting for us. And the Lord has prepared a place of nourishment for us, not just in salvation, but in our day-to-day -day Christian living. Secondly, I would say this, though. It's not just that he's prepared a table, but lesson number two is that he's dealt with the enemy. As the shepherd goes into the table land to prepare the ground for the flock, he, he does more than just prepare the ground. He looks for the enemy. The shepherd will be on guard to find tracks from a bear or a wolf or a coyote or a cougar or a lion or whatever the predator may be. And the shepherd will go to great lengths to ensure that he does his dead-level best to eradicate that enemy. He'll go to great lengths to hunt down the enemy. He'll go to great lengths to trap that adversary and to ensure that his flock is not harmed or molested or hurt by the enemy that's in the tableland. And not just a carnivore, not just a predator in that way, but especially in Palestine in David's, in David's days, the, the, probably the number one enemy that you'd have to deal with in the tableland was the adder. 
that little brown snake, that hole in the ground, that the shepherd would go before the sheep, and as he puts salts and minerals down, as he prepares that table, he would keep a vigilant eye out for the holes in the ground. And the shepherd would take oil and he would pour it down those holes on a consistent basis to ensure that the smell drove the snake away and that it was slippery so that if a sheep is grazing, that adder cannot just come up out of that hole and bite the sheep in the face. And that's real life for a shepherd and his flock, that if that, if that happens, that sheep is going to be infected at best, die at worst. And the shepherd will prepare the table land. He will do it in the presence of the enemies. He'll do his best. Here's essentially what the shepherd does. Some enemies he's able to completely destroy. Other enemies, he can't hunt them. He can't trap them for whatever reason, and he has to defeat them. That they come, they attack the flock, and he has to thwart their efforts. And this is what David does. He says, right, with the lion and the bear, that he, he defeated them when they came at him. But a shepherd never underestimates those enemies that are there for his flock. And in a very literal way, for us as modern American Christians, our enemy has been destroyed, yes, needs to be defeated on a day-to-day basis, but should never be underestimated. These are, I want to share a couple of verses with you. A couple of these we've looked at recently. One is 1 John 3. We looked at this in our He Came series as we understood why was it that Jesus came. And 1 John 3 verse 8 tells us this. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, was manifest. He came for this reason. And this should light your fire. To destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Literally to loose, to melt, to break away, to, to set you free. That he came to do that. 1 Corinthians 15, we looked at this uh, passage of scripture last week. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul comes to the resurrection chapter and he writes about the resurrection and the victory that we can enjoy. And Paul says in verse number 54, So when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, when this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that's written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? I imagine, I, you, I hope that they have instant replay in, in heaven. I imagine that when Paul got to this portion of, of Scripture, that he just did like a quill drop. I'm pretty sure he just kind of like dipped his pen in ink, wrote, oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? And just dropped the quill and started to walk away. That didn't actually happen. The Holy Spirit told him, pick it back up. You have another chapter to write. But that is, that's profound, that, that swallowed up in victory, that's the same word that's used of our adversary, the devil, who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It's the same word, that literally death is devoured in victory. It's swallowed up, that the sting is gone, that it's been destroyed, that the enemy is gone for the Christian, that, that is, that's no longer there. Turn to Colossians 2. I want you to see a couple of these for yourself. Colossians 2. We'll look at uh, two or three verses here. This is what the Bible says that Jesus Christ did to our enemy. And our enemy is, to be clear, sin, death, and the agents of darkness. Now, some uh, like to kind of water that down and act like you know, there, there's really not a devil, there's not agents of darkness, but the Bible is explicit over and over and over again that there is spiritual warfare and there is a real enemy that is, that is the devil and his devils. And this is what the Bible says Jesus Christ did to them in his death, burial, and resurrection. In Colossians 2, not just did to them, but did for us. Verse number 13. 
in you, Christian, being dead in your, in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together, literally made alive with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he, Jesus, made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. The Bible says that through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he triumphed over the agents of darkness, that he made a public display of them and said, watch me and see what I do. Go back a few pages to 1 Corinthians 2, towards the front of your Bible, probably 15 or 20 pages. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us this, for us and what Jesus did on the cross and the victory that is there. 1 Corinthians 2, verse number 6, the Bible tells us, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that come to naught. Verse number 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Literally, God prepared the table. Verse number 8. Which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This is the Bible truth for us that in the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel, that the works of the devil are destroyed, that he triumphs over the agents of darkness, that death is swallowed up in victory, the sting of sin is gone, that, that those that would crucified him, they wouldn't have done it if they would have known what was happening. If they would have understood what this meant and what Jesus was going to do and that he was going to deal with the enemy, they wouldn't have done it. This literally was a sneak attack from God. You ever play thumb wars with your brother or sister growing up? We used to do that, you know, one, two, three, four, I declare thumb war touch. You know what I'm talking about? If, if you've played thumb wars for any length of time or you have a competitive family, then you know there's more to thumb wars than your thumb. You know, you have the tag team where you can pull your alternate hand and you can pin them down. Tough to escape the tag team. You can pull the sneak attack, though. The sneak attack is where you take your index finger and you wrap it up over their thumb. And that's a tough move to counter if someone declares sneak attack. In a very real way, God did a sneak attack on those that crucified him. They would not have done it had they known what that was going to accomplish. He triumphs over sin. He triumphs over death. That in our life, if I could give you an analogy, you are an inmate bound to sin on death row with the devil as a jailkeeper. And in salvation, in your regeneration, death, the death penalty is disannulled. It's gone. It's no longer. You're loosed from your chains, and the prison door is open, and you can walk free. That literally, that's been destroyed. That has been taken care of. The enemy's dealt with. Now, we understand that the jailkeeper is still roaming around trying to rope us back into jail. We understand Proverbs tells us that we're like dogs sometimes. When we return to our sin, we're as a dog that returneth to its vomit. That's a gross analogy, but it's, it's what the Bible says. We understand that sometimes we walk right back into that cell and we pick up the handcuffs and we start to slap them on ourselves. So, yes, it's destroyed, but we still need that defeat on, day, on a day-to-day -day basis. We don't underestimate our enemy. This is, the Bible tells us that he is a roaring lion, walking about seeking whom he may devour. Ephesians tells us to walk circumspectly. All of you that are hunters, you know what it's like to see a deer walk circumspectly. 
and to be very cautious in the, in the steps that it takes. This is why Jesus tells us in, in Matthew 6 that in the Lord's Prayer that we should pray, lead us not into temptation, but what? Deliver us from evil. So we don't underestimate our enemy. We don't, we don't take that lightly. We, lightly. we understand that we need that victory day to day, but we also understand that there's victory there. We also understand the enemy has literally been dealt with. For us, we glory and we revel, and this is why we're instructed biblically to look forward to the second coming so much. We revel in this thought that one day we will be able to sit down at a feast of victory and feast for all eternity, and we will, we will never have to stop eating that meal. But we also understand that today, appetizers are being served. That we don't have to live life in our, our Christian life. It's not just, I'm going to survive. It's, I can succeed. I can live in victory today because the enemy has been dealt with. Amen. Lesson number three for us is this. He's invited you to the feast. It's not just that he's prepared a table. It's not just that he's dealt with the enemy. He's also invited you. If the Lord prepared the table and dealt with the enemy but extended no invitation, that would do you no good. We understand that everything has been cared for. Everything is done, and now the ball is in our court. Isn't this the, the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 22 of the kingdom of heaven? Isn't it likened to the man that prepares the marriage feast? And he tells them to go out and invite them to the marriage feast, but to, to, the, to the man's surprise, they refuse. So he tells them, okay, now go out to the highways and hedges and compel them to come in and get someone else to the feast. But he says, that's the kingdom of heaven. The, the feast is prepared. The table is set. The invitation is there. It is our job to accept it. This is why uh, the Lord was so bent out of shape, and he was, I shouldn't say bent out of shape, he was so miffed at the children of Israel in the wilderness. The Bible tells us, and for sake of time, maybe just jot this in the, in the margin of your Bible in Psalm 78, that the Lord God furnished a table in the wilderness. Literally, it's the same phrase as prepared a table in Psalm 23. That he furnished a table, and what did the children of Israel begin to do? They begin to murmur, and they begin to complain, and they begin to not trust in the Lord. And the Bible says at the end of Psalm 78 that because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation, that's why he was angry. They hear these children of Israel, it was all done, it was all prepared, it was all there, but they refused to believe, they refused to trust. We all probably know a coworker or a neighbor or a friend or a family member that you do your best to witness and you do your best to share and you do your best to tell them the table's set, sit down and eat, it's going to be great, except the Lord Jesus, but they refuse. That's real life sometimes, it's not God's fault. It's, it's not that God doesn't, hasn't done his part, he's prepared the table. He's dealt with the enemy, but it's their fault because they refuse to believe. But outside of salvation, in, a, in our day-to-day -day Christian life, the, the case is the same. Table prepared, enemy dealt with, invitation is there. It's our job to accept the invitation and to live in victory. Psalm, if you want to put another one in the margin of your Bible, Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65 basically says this, that... If you look at kind of the middle of that chapter, verses 11 through 16, that the Lord prepared a table for the children of Israel. And, and Isaiah says this, that they sought to prepare their own table. They sought to make their own meal. And then God clearly tells them, this isn't going to work. This is not going to pan out. And he clearly tells them, because 
you're not following me. You're not listening to me. You're trying to do this your way. You will go hungry and you will go thirsty. Your efforts to prepare your own meal and satisfy your own soul will backfire on you and you will be hungry and thirsty because you refuse my table and seek to make your own. And that's real life for us. That's really where the rubber meets the road. That it's, it's not the good shepherd's fault. He's prepared it. He's dealt with the enemy. The problem is our fault. That we try to make our own table. We follow after other shepherds who always disappoint us, who always let us down. Yeah, there's some small token of satisfaction maybe initially, but who always end up disappointing when we follow after them rather than the good shepherd. Sometimes we follow after <clears throat> a shepherd that would maybe be called the achievement shepherd. You know, good grades in school, promotions at work, success in ministry. And we follow so hard after that that we say no to the good shepherd and we begin to focus in on this is what matters and this is what I'm pursuing and this is what I'm going to let guard and govern and, and lead my life. Sometimes we follow after the approval shepherd. I got to say yes to everything. I want them to like me. I want them to love me. I, I need to live up to their expectations. Sometimes we follow after the comfort shepherd that I'm just going to earn lots of money and I'm going to buy lots of toys and I'm going to accumulate to myself a good life and for my wife and for my kids and I'm going to follow after comfort. Sometimes we follow after relationship shepherds and just searching, searching, searching for the right relationship, the right person, the right one. I just, I, I need that connection. But don't we find that as we begin to pursue those and allow those shepherds to lead our life that they disappoint? Don't we find that they never deliver what they can? And don't we find when it's all said and done at the very end of life, they all fall flat on their face? That's the primary reason that you know when you're following after a false shepherd, you know that they'll never get you through the valley of the shadow of death. The grave will gobble up everything that you invested in them. And it will leave you empty. But that's not, that's pessimistic, I know. But that's not it. The real story is that there's a good shepherd who satisfies, who's there to help, to lead, that if you follow closely, if you are with him, then you can find satisfaction, not just in eternity, not just in some ethereal heaven in the sky somewhere, one day hope and, and, and maybe that'll come true, but in today, in tomorrow, in the next day, that you can sit down at the table and you can enjoy Christian victory and you can walk and happiness and joy, knowing the fruit of the Spirit and understanding that there is a feast before you that's been prepared, that's been set, that you have an invitation to, that you can go to. So what do we do? What do we, literally, what do we do if all the work has been done, the table set, the enemy's dealt with, the invitation's there, what do we do? If I could put it in a nutshell and make it as simple as I possibly could for you, I would, I would give you two words, close and clean. You as a sheep, you stay close to your shepherd and you do your best to stay clean. Now we understand that we don't clean ourselves and that he cleans us. But you as a sheep, it's your job to stay as close to the good shepherd as you possibly can. That's why your relationship with him and your, in your prayer life, in your Bible reading, in your day-to-day -day walk with him, that's why it's paramount. That's why my sermon on Sunday morning will never give you Christian victory. You have to do it on your own. 
You, you have to enjoy it on your own. You have to follow after Him. You have to stay close. And you have to be clean. You have to, and I understand we've already looked at, at earlier in this psalm that we do fall down and He does restore our soul, that He picks us up and He cleans us up and He sets us on our way. You can't do it yourself, so don't think that you can. But you as a sheep, it's your job to say, Good shepherd, I understand I'm a sheep. I understand that I'm dumb. I understand that I wander away. I understand that I don't know where to go and I want to follow you. I want to stay close. I want to stay clean. Lead me. Guide me. And as you seek to do that, as you Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, as you live your life in that vein, it's then that you sit at the table and you eat day after day after day and you experience the victory that is it's set for you. The table, he's gone before you. He's prepared it for you already. He's dealt with the enemy. He's given you an invitation. The ball's in your court. You have, to, you have to follow hard. You have to stay close and clean. You have to understand that that's your only hope. If you truly want to follow a shepherd who will lead you in the paths of righteousness, who will lead you to nourishment, who will give you what you need, that's it. You have to follow the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, and understand my job as a Christian is to stay close and clean. 